Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If a task you're working on goes wrong, how much should you be blamed? Well, that probably depends on who you ask. I guess I would ask you to imagine yourself as a World War II pilot coming in from perhaps a long, stressful, tiring bombing run, and you're in like a noisy, dark, poorly lit cockpit. You can't necessarily see everything laid out around you. Cliff Kwong is describing a moment in history when the question on the table was, who do you blame? And you've done this maybe dozens, hundreds of times, right? And so when you, you come in for a landing, you think that you're engaging the landing gear, but instead nothing works and you end up hitting the runway at full force and skidding off the runway and potentially damaging the plane, injuring the people on the plane, etc. Kwong says after a series of deadly plane crashes during the war, the Air Force wanted to know what was wrong with the pilots? Why did they make so many errors? Well, the man called on to address this question was Paul Fitz, who happened to have a PhD in psychology and would become a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. The answer that Fitz came up with still reverberates today and impacts our lives in countless ways. And what he realizes is that the wing flaps and the landing gear are arranged in the exact same way. They are activated in the same way with the same lever uh, that works the same way. And so what was happening was that these two things, the landing gear and the wing flaps, which do opposite things, right? One prepares you for landing. One adjusts the shape of the wings for takeoff. They do, in fact, opposite things. And what was actually happening was people were reaching for the landing gear and engaging the wing flaps. Fitz departed from the psychological orthodoxy of the time, Kwong says. He rejected the notion that the pilots who had crashed, or who had almost crashed, that they were ill-suited to be pilots. Instead, Fitz argued, the planes were ill-suited to have people flying them. Put another way, they were designed terribly. And that was the first time in history that people started thinking about things in that light. Kwong is a user experience designer, and he's the author, with Robert Fabricant, of User-Friendly, How the Hidden Rules of Design Are Changing the Way We Live, Work, and Play. Design, Kwong argues, has changed our lives. In fact, if you've flown on a plane, it may have saved your life. And the radical shifts in design of everything from planes to phones that we've seen in the last 75 years, they have reordered our lives so completely that that reordering is now almost unnoticeable. In fact, in a world in which restaurants and schools and churches are literally being redesigned so as to be functional in the middle of a pandemic, design has become an indispensable tool in our toolbox. But it wasn't always that way. Paul Fitz examined thousands of plane crashes, and in many of them, two buttons that looked alike but that did dangerously different things had been mixed up by panicked pilots. This was technology, the thinking went, the pilots just hadn't gotten used to. But Fitz insisted, no, design is important. People should be catered to. They should be designed around. And Kwong says the importance of design in our lives has never really stopped growing. Today, by law, and this is internationally codified, things like wing flaps and landing gear, they all 
a chord to a, a standard called shape coding in which all those knobs are shaped different ways. They're actuated in different ways so that you can know via many different senses whether or not you are in fact doing the right thing. It's the reason why all the knobs and dials in your car are different. It's so that you can know these things by sight and by feel and even in some cases by sound. You talk about a kind of natural language of design. It, it somehow seems natural that let's say rewind is on the left, fast forward is on the right. Um, And we also look for metaphors to help understand how something works. So I did not know this before I read it in in the book, um, but steering wheels in cars are there because at one point, uh, cars were new, people did not know how they worked, and they needed an analogy. Basically, you steer a car like you steer a, and apparently the answer is boat. Right. And so, you know, in fact, some of the earliest cars had tillers. They didn't actually even have steering wheels. And it turned out over time that the steering wheel somehow made logical sense. It made some ergonomic sense because you could keep turning it because it was round and whatnot. But it also made some logical sense. There was some, like, mysterious vein of metaphor. In other words, like, I'm driving a car with wheels and I'm turning a wheel. And this wheel corresponds to how those wheels are sort of working directionally. You can see that the ancestors of that process of first finding a metaphor, then finding these rules that people can sort of understand, that's built into all the technology that's around us. Right. Well, I think files like on your computer, like even, you know, kids who don't know what file folders are, they've never seen an actual physical filing system with like those manila folders, Um, but they might know what it looks like on a computer. But the idea, I assume, is with the first generation of people who use computers, you're trying to say, you know what this is like? It's like filing things in a filing cabinet. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, you know, the reason why if you had maybe an iPhone one or two that the calendar looked like it was like a leather leather executive calendar on your desk. Hmm. I find this example rather beautiful. You know, in the 1950s, Henry Dreyfus designed the Bell Labs 500 telephone, which had this faceted design that allowed you to cradle it between your ear and your shoulder. It became quickly a classic of industrial design. But when it comes down to, to put a phone on the smartphone, It's that faceted handset shape that becomes that phone icon. What's interesting, though, now is that because we've sort of almost forgotten about landlines, right, that if you ask kids today, like, what's that icon? They're not going to say, like, oh, yeah, it refers to, like, a landline phone. They're just going to say, oh, that's the phone icon. Right, right. Right. (laughs) I I have seen uh, my daughter with a landline phone, and she doesn't know what to do with it. I mean, she doesn't know how to put it to her face so she can be in a conversation. So it's so funny because, as you say, it's on people's phones, and yet give it to them. and And if you're young enough, people are like, I don't know. What is this? What do I do with it? Where do I put it? You know. So this is something I describe in the book, which is this idea that, look, new technologies are typically introduced to us with a metaphor that says, hey, this thing is like this other thing, right? Right. For example, like the computer desktop is like your real desktop. It does this sort of similar thing. But the interesting thing about that is I call it a ladder of metaphors, and that itself is not a perfect metaphor because what happens with these metaphors is that we discard Mm. them. Once you've lifted up over that rung, it sort of just gets left for dead. Mm -hmm. And some of these reference go away as we become familiar and we don't need that scaffolding, that handholding anymore to be explained what these things do because they've integrated themselves enough into our lives. 
So let's talk about you. You talked about Henry Dreyfus. Um, I, I just want to ask you a little bit about how this idea of design being built around people got started. I mean, Henry Ford, if you look at the very beginning of the 1900s, was designing not just cars. We think of like, oh, what he designed was cars, but he was also building assembly lines. And in some sense, he realized assembly lines to really work had to be built around the people who worked on them. Right. So can you just talk about sort of the very beginnings, the very like the seedlings of people realizing if you really want a design to work, you're going to have to take into account the folks using the thing. So I think you can, you know, and this is a history that we still feel to this day, but I think that there's two basic ideas, this deference to human beings, for example, saying that we should defer to how human beings behave as opposed to we should teach human beings to use this thing. That's a fundamentally different radical shift. And the reason that happens is that in the 1940s and then, you know, sort of in the early 1930s, there's all these new technologies being introduced to people in the home, right? Washing machines, mm. dishwashers, hand mixers, all this, this range of stuff. And the bottom line is, is like all this stuff is like nothing that ever anybody even imagined themselves needing before. And so to get those people to actually use stuff, you actually had to defer to their imagination of what was hard, what was difficult, how they lived their lives. You had to, in some sense, anticipate how they would behave in their home. You couldn't, as is the case in the military, say, like, I'm going to teach you how to use this machine and you have to use this machine every day. This is instead was an, a dynamic of people drawn to new products through choice. Right. You have to convince people you've never used a hand mixer, but believe me, you need one. Right. And so in that world, it's not enough to say this thing needs to be trained. Instead, you have to actually defer to their intuitions and you actually have to say, I am in some way in service of you mm. going about your daily life and I'm here to save you time. The problem with the Great Depression, of course, was the suppression of demand. People just didn't think that they needed stuff. They saved. They saved whatever they had if they had it. So there was this idea that, oh, yeah, we need to convince people that they should spend money to make their lives better. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with user experience designer Cliff Kwong. He is the author with Robert Fabricant of User Friendly, How the Hidden Rules of Design Are Changing the Way We Live, Work, and Play. I wonder about the kind of darker side of user-friendly design, the notion that if we are good enough designers, we can convince people to buy all sorts of things they don't need. Like, you know, I think there's a, a line in your book where you're like, you know, people have a lot of gadgets. That's not a bug in the system. That's the system. You know, I mean, obviously, how is anybody going to make any money? Or like, how is Apple going to make any money if they don't design things that are A, like you might need a, b a whole bunch of different things because then you can give them a whole bunch of money from different in different streams and be obsolete. I mean, at some point, you, you don't want the stuff to last forever, do you? Yeah. So the odd thing is, is that and this is why a book about contemporary technology starts with history, because, you know, a lot of that dialogue, again, gets started in the Great Depression. And to some extent, that's why I start there is that, look, we're still living in that legacy. We're still living with that expectation. We live with this expectation that, you know, there's a new iPhone every year and it's so much better than what you had last year that you've got to go out and get it. And that exists for so many different industries. Apple's not the only one. It's, it's for almost anything. And we still live by those assumptions that that is the march of technology. That is the march of consumers, consumerization products and design. What I will say is like, look, 
that belief system is contingent. That belief system can change. It's only been around for a few decades, and that doesn't mean that it's going to persist forever. So you think there's a possibility that we could move towards some sort of more, I don't know, sustainable kind of design? Like, if we've moved towards more user-friendly design, maybe there's a there's a more sustainable design out there where we do keep things for a lot longer, or we change out some portion of them that's small, but keep the main thing that's big. Yeah, and I would really hope so. And, and I would actually, you know, if, if you think this is a fantasy, one thing I would point out is that software does that. Hmm. You don't necessarily throw the thing out, especially with this idea of software as a service. Basically, you pay for it to do a job in your life. You have the expectation that it's constantly going to do that job a little bit better, not because you got rid of the thing that you, you had before, but because you just have a service that's just improving. And so I do think that there are business models that are a little bit more interesting and a little bit different than what exists today than buying a thing and replacing the thing constantly. And so that is one sense in which I do think the digitization of the world around us is a good thing, although you can also say there's many reasons to think that it's also something that is problematic and in need of fixing. I wonder if you can talk, too, about the issue of, like, addiction and compulsion. I mean, in some ways, user-friendly design has gotten so friendly to the user, some might argue, that it's hard to look away from the beautifully designed game or phone or whatever. Like, you're compelled to keep picking it up. I just wonder if that worries you at all. It absolutely worries me, right? I mean, I, you know, I've talked at length about this. I've written at length about it that somehow we've designed these kinds of like systems of reward that very much resemble Skinner boxes where you get a satisfying reward for doing a certain action and then you keep doing that certain action in in hopes that you'll get that same reward. And that same dynamic, that same feedback loop has been designed into almost any service you can think of, right? Twitter, Facebook, they all have this like, oh, let me check what happened. Let me see what happened. Yeah, they have yeah, this yeah. slot machine right. sort of dynamic to them. And that's a problem. Ultimately, it's ironic because user-friendly design was meant to say, I see what you want to be. I see that you want to save time. I see you as a human being, and I'm trying to restore you some of that dignity and choice. And so it's ironic that in this day and age, we have now optimized so many of these products such that they can now manipulate us because they can actually approximate these addictive behaviors. And so no longer are they deferring to us. In some ways, they're making us defer to them. They're, they're using us, right? Are you at all concerned that as gadgets, as machines, as all sorts of things are better designed, that in some ways we des- are designing things so well that we are designing ourselves out of jobs, out of positions, out of, you know, things to do because, wow, this, is, this, this uh, computer is really good at taking feedback. Like, who needs the person? Obviously, I'm extremely concerned about that, you know, and again, like I always look to previous examples to find some inspiration for what we should do next. And one of the things you'll note is that, you know, in airplane cockpits in specific, there is this idea of an automation paradox, which is the following. You introduce a little bit of automation, you make things a little bit easier for a pilot. And that does, in fact, make the, make the plane easier to fly. It makes the pilot's life a little bit better. But you keep on doing that. You keep on doing that. You keep on doing that. And it turns out that their skills atrophy over time. Mm-hmm. They become less good as pilots. And therefore, you have to automate more and more and more for them just to get up to the level that previous generations were. And the reason I go into that example is that, like, look, I think that there's a, there's a way in which you could say this is actually happening at scale. And so I think that you can easily say, like, are we in the grips of a coming automation crisis? For example, like, 
driverless cars. What happens to a generation of, of drivers that actually knows that the car can't crash itself? What do they drive like? This is not theoretical. I imagine my daughter, who is a year and a half, like she's going to have some semi-autonomous car that won't let her do certain things. But like, right, but right. when push comes to shove, is she going to be a driver? Do I trust that she is able to take that? I don't know. So my point is that we started this discussion talking about the ease and self-actualization that user-friendly design allows and that certain generations believed in. And I think a, a lot of that ease can actually make design and the decisions around us into black boxes. We became less capable, become less active consumers and deciders of our own destiny. And instead, if you wanted to paint an apocalypse that in very candy-colored hues, you know, you get the world of WALL-E, right, where each one of us exists only to consume, where we lean back in a chair with a screen in front of our face and food on demand, and we don't have to think much about anything. We're just there to consume. And I do think that, like, there's a world in which what design needs to do is actually seed and return to us more autonomy and decision-making power than it currently offers, which makes like certain choices easy and other choices hard. Cliff Kwong is the author, with Robert Fabricant, of User-Friendly, How the Hidden Rules of Design Are Changing the Way We Live, Work, and Play. Cliff, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Caitlin Falds. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.